1 John chapter 2, and this evening our study in verse, is in verses 7 through 11. John writes in the second chapter, verse number 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness had blinded his eyes. I think it's really good to be back on Wednesday nights with the Wednesday night crowd because I really like to preach to people who love the Word of God. And though my presentation of God's Word is at best feeble, I just hope that you'll overlook my ineptitude at being able to preach to you and consider the truths that are being preached in Scripture. For a long time, I thought that what I really had to do was worry about performance. How, how am I going to perform when I preach a message? And I thought in order for a sermon to even be worth listening to, that uh, I, I had to do a, a, just really had to perform well. But I've come to the conclusion that in preaching, showmanship really doesn't leave people much better off. It's the truth of the Word of God that makes the difference in people's lives. And the Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit will always take His Word and He'll use it as He pleases. A few weeks ago, I was reading about a preacher who was converted by listening to a, a, a preacher that most people would consider to be very boring. In fact, he considered the preacher to be boring. He complained that the preacher just stood behind the pulpit. He never looked up from his text. He never waved his arms and never moved around. And so he just preached straight from the Word of God in a very determined manner. And it was what most people nowadays would consider to be a very boring sermon. And so this man was turned off by the preaching, and he thought that it really didn't do him much good. But later on, he got to thinking about what was said rather than how it was said. And then he began to understand that he was a sinner in need of the grace of God, and he had this great burden that was on his heart that just had to be lifted, and he knew that he needed to be saved. And so he thought about the words that the preacher said, and that man was converted under a very boring sermon. So it's not always a fired-up preacher, the one, that, uh, the one that can bring you the message that you really need. So I hope that you do excuse my inabilities and my stumbling at times, because I've never been so vain as to think that people come to hear me to preach, just to hear me preach. Uh, I'd be scared if you came for that reason, but I'm glad that you do come uh, by, I mean, to hear the Word of God because the Word is satisfying. The Word is what add de- adds depth to your life as a Christian. So it's with that thought in mind that we look again at this text in First John, and we've discovered in our study that John presents tests that a person can use to prove that he truly is in the faith. And this is what First John was written for because there were many people that were in the church that uh, said that they were in the faith, but they didn't have the proper evidence of that. 
false professors claimed that they had this superior knowledge of God when in reality they didn't really know very much about God at all. And so they couldn't pass the test that John gave here, uh, and that showed that they weren't really in the faith because applying the test, passing the test, shows that faith is genuine. So First John is written to give believers assurance. Uh, how can you really know that you are in Christ? And the first test was a moral test. And the third verse of chapter number 2 states this very clearly. John says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And I would have to tell you that I think of the three tests that are presented in 1 John, that this one is the easiest one. The others are the social test and the doctrinal test. But this one is one that you can try out on your own when you're all alone, when you're in a place where no one sees you, you don't have to interact with anyone else, this is a very straightforward test that you can apply to yourself. When you are alone and when nobody can see you, do you waffle in your morality? And do you understand what I mean here? Uh, are you someone who is different when you're alone? Have you made a profession in Christ, and yet when you're all by yourself, it's very easy for you to slide out of that profession and do things that you shouldn't be doing. Now, obedience, the Word of God teaches, is out of a pure heart of faith. And this is a test to see if you really are in that faith. It's a soul-searching test. And this is one that's really hard on the flesh, but perhaps it is the one that most quickly flow, throws up a, a red flag to tell if there's something wrong. So the tests that we find here in First John are interwoven with one another. Uh, the obedience test is wrapped around the social test, and the social test is the one that we're discussing in these two messages. The social test is love. And the way that it's folded into the moral test is in verse number 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which he had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. And this is what we've called love in the law. Love is a commandment. It's really actually the underlying foundation of all God's commandments. And when love is present, obedience to all parts of the law will follow. Now, the first part of the law is about loving God. The Scripture says that we are to love God with our heart, our soul, and our minds. Uh, everything that we have, we are to love God. The second part of that is we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that is an old commandment because this has been in the law ever since uh, it was given by Moses. And as we talked about last week, by proving, we proved it logically that love was actually a commandment from the very beginning all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Love was a command that God has given. But it was codified by Moses in the law when God gave it to him on Mount Sinai. And so that tells us that at least for 1,500 years, people had this law of God that says that we are to love God and to love our fellow men. But when we look here at verse number 8 of our text, it muddies the water just a little bit. It becomes a little bit confusing because John says, Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Now there in verse number 7, John says, I haven't written a new commandment to you. It's an old commandment. And now he says in verse number 8 that he does write a new commandment. Well, the new commandment is actually a greater understanding of the intent of the old commandment. For instance, when the old, in the Old Testament, when it said, love your neighbor, 
neighbor was very narrowly defined. People had a very limited understanding of who the neighbor is. And usually what it came down to is the neighbor is the person who is exactly like me. I'm to love people that are exactly like me. But when Christ came, he expanded the meaning of this, and he, he expanded that to people that are not at all like you. In fact, it was expansive enough to include people that are enemies, people that are persecutors. And far worse for the Jews, or at least they thought it was far worse, that they were to love Gentiles. And not only were Jews to love Gentiles, but they were to recognize that they were fully-fledged citizens of God's kingdom as much as they were. And so the Gentiles enjoyed all of the same rights and all the same privileges that were enjoyed by the Jews. And then there were other types of inclusiveness that came when Christ expanded the gospel or, or expanded love in the gospel. And one of these was that women was elevated. Uh, I mean, I hear so many times that women complain that Paul, for instance, hated females. Uh, we used to have a lady in the church some years ago who thought that Berean was far too male-oriented. And so she said, I, I, we need to be liberated around here. And she didn't realize that the gospel had already liberated women to previously unimaginable proportions. You know, I think people really need to understand what the gospel does. The gospel frees us to worship God in God's way. It doesn't free us to worship God in our own way, but in God's way. And so uh, God receives the glory from that when we worship in his way. And this is why women can't be preachers. And that's because God has not chosen to be glorified in that way. And this is why the Bible says that women are not to speak in the church. They're not to speak in a public assembly. They're not to pray in a public assembly. And it's simply because God has not chosen to be glorified that way. It has nothing to do with whether men are better than women or, or men are to be regarded more highly than women. It has, all of us are equal in the eyes of God in that sense. But when it comes to the public worship, God has a particular way in what he, way he wants to be worshipped. And we have to look in the Word of God and find out what that is. And so if it includes men doing the preaching and men doing the praying in the public assembly, and if God says that's the way we worship him, that's the way you glorify him, then that's what we do. And if we try to turn that around and we say, well, I'm going to do it my way, well, we can't possibly glorify God. God doesn't care about your way, and God doesn't care about my way. God said, I am the potter and you are the clay. And let's don't get mixed up here about who's spinning the wheel. So these are all parts of obedience. You show love to God by obedience. And when you are right on target with your love for God, then the default setting is that will flow into your love for one another. Now that brings me to uh, part number two of this sermon, which is love in life. Because the commandment that's given in verse number 8, this new commandment, must translate into the Christian life. You can't theorize about it. Uh, you don't want to spend all your time talking about it. And we could do that. We, we could sit right here in the congregation tonight and we could make this whole thing an academic pursuit. And we could try to determine why is it that he talks about this as an old commandment and he talks about it as a new commandment. Why don't we just go to the commentaries? Why don't we just go listen to preachers? Why don't we just all get together and just try to figure this whole thing out? Of what does John mean by new commandment and old commandment? And let's sit here and let's theorize about love. Well, John has something a little bit more definitive than that. He says, if you want to know about what I'm talking about, go out and try it in your life. I mean, here's the simple thing about it. You go out there and you just do love in your life. 
So, uh, if you want to know who is a Christian, you find out how well they put this commandment into practice. Now, I'm going to explain to you now why I said that first test was a whole lot easier than the second test. It's a whole lot easier to live by commandments than it is simply to live by love. Now, love is in the commandments. That's a part of it. But let's take this. Let's exclude love for just a minute, and let's think about living by commandments. It is actually easier to live by a set of rules. Uh, Many churches like rules. They may not be too too good at loving each other, but they do love rules. And believe it or not, there is a certain comfort that you find in rules because you have a measuring rod. And you can find out how close you are to God, or at least you think you do, by finding out how many rules that you can keep. And so you just go by the rules and you determine how good a Christian you are by the scorecard. How many rules did you keep? But we need to flip that around because Jesus did not say, keep commandments in order to love me. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, let's see how that thought translates into these next verses. Verse number 9 says, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness had blinded his eyes." Here we have another one of these straightforward applications of truth made by John. Things are always black and white with John. You don't find gray areas. You don't have to worry about splitting hairs because you're either going to stand on one side or you're going to fall on the other when you read John. Now, in the end of verse number 8, he says, The darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. Now, we're going to talk about what that means. The darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. So, what does this mean? What's he talking about here? Well, first we can say he's speaking of the perfection of Christ. I mean, just to prove that there is a practical application to love, you need look no further than the life of Christ. Now, we can talk about his dying, and that was certainly a demonstration of his love. But as an example for us, and working love through the Christian life, Christ needed to do more than just to come and die for us. He wants us to show love, and he wanted to show love to us. Now, if the disciples, if the only way that they could show love was by dying, then pretty soon you wouldn't have any more disciples. You wouldn't have any demonstration any longer because they would all be dead. And so Christ tells us about how to be a living demonstration of love. And he actually showed by his own example how far this love must go. A familiar passage to you on this would be uh, the reading in John chapter 13 on the night of the Lord's Supper. Now you might want to turn there for just a moment and you can kind of peruse the first part of that chapter while I'm telling you the story. But the night that Jesus gave the supper was a very troubling night. Uh, He knew that he was betrayed. It wouldn't be long before he would stand in the judgment hall, and there he would be condemned to death. And what would follow that was mockery. There would be uh, beatings, the scourging. Nails would be driven into his body. And worst of all, he would have to bear our sins. And as he did that, he would suffer the rejection of his father. And in the midst of all that mental anguish, most of us would be too stupefied to do anything. We would be thinking about that, and we would just crumble up into a mess. We'd fall on the floor in one great big heap of depression. Well, all of that's going on. 
And at the same time that's happening, knowing what's going to occur with the betrayal and the crucifixion and all that that's going to happen, on top of that, the disciples that he had chosen earlier, these ones that he'd called out to follow him, uh, to be the ones that would give the gospel to people after he was gone from this world, they were involved in a self-serving discussion about which one of them was greatest in the kingdom of God. Now here they are, they're having this argument, and they had missed, and they had missed, and they continued to miss what Jesus explained that he would do in his death. His death would be the ultimate, supreme example of humility. Here is the one who was crowned in glory, and as Philippians tells us, he stepped down from that place, stepped off his throne, he went to the death of the cross. The one who was wearing a crown in glory would wear a crown of thorns and then suffer that worst death that was imaginable, nailed to a Roman cross. So he was about to lower himself to die, while at the same time he has this whole group of selfish disciples that are all striving to be the top dog in the kingdom. Now with all of that in mind, all of these things that are swirling around, all that's happening, the thoughts of the cross, uh, that's on his mind, the disciples arguing with one another about which one of them is the greatest. You know what Jesus did? He just got up from the supper. He walked over and he took a bowl of water. He took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around him. And he went over and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And he carefully wiped them off, washed washed them, took the towel that he was girded with and then dried them and then showed them that great example. And not one of those disciples thought about doing that. And I suppose every one of them came to the supper with dirty feet, and every one of them passed by the bowl that was sitting by the door, and not one of them stopped in order to wash anybody's feet. Now, there wasn't a servant there. A servant would normally do that. When you entered into the house, it was customary. The servant there, he's, he's just a servant. That's all he is. And he stands there by the door, and as the people come in, they take their sandals off, and the servant washes their feet. But every one of these disciples, when they entered that room, not one of them thought, you know, I think what I need to do, the servant's not here to wash feet. So what I'll do, I'll stand here by the door. And as they come in, I'll wash their feet. And they won't have to eat with unwashed feet. Not one of them thought that, even for a moment. They would have never entertained this because they didn't have in their minds that they needed to be a servant. What they had in their minds was being greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, here's part of what John means by this when he says the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He's speaking here of the expectation of Christ that his people would be changed, that they would have such a loving heart that self is demolished and servanthood is exalted. And Christ was that perfect example. Now, if you'll look a little bit later in this chapter, you'll find something written here or said by Jesus that must have stuck with John. He says in verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Well, there's no doubt that this is what John had on his mind when he wrote verses 7 and 8. And he must have had washing feet on his mind when he wrote verses 9 through 11. Because you can't walk with Jesus and you can't pass this true test of discipleship if you don't love as Jesus loved. You can't have hatred in your heart and be his disciple. Folks, you can't sit 
in this church building with this aisle between you and being glad that it's there because you don't have to go over and fellowship with somebody on the other side of the room that you don't like, somebody that you would turn your nose up at. Now, the question is for all of us, would we walk across that aisle and wash that person's feet if need be? Christ did it. He would do it. He did do it. You see, Jesus had knowledge of something that none of us have knowledge of. He could see into the future, and he knew that every one of those disciples were going to betray him in one sense or the other. They were all going to forsake him. And Jesus got up, and he walked over there to Peter and washed his feet when he knew that in just a few minutes, just probably less than just a couple of hours or so, Peter would be out there denying him not once but three times and even cursing, saying that he did not know Christ. And with that on his mind, knowing, knowing exactly what, what Peter would do, Jesus still went over and washed his feet. Now, you see why I say that this test is so much harder? I mean, could you get up and wash somebody's feet when you knew that in just a few minutes they're going to be out there in the parking lot cursing you, complaining about you, fussing all kinds of things about you? Could you do that? And that's why this test is so much harder than the first one. Now, let's move on here then to the real application of it, and that is the transformation of a Christian. What Jesus did on that Lord's Supper night is more than difficult for you and me. In fact, what he did is impossible. Now, if I'm to walk across the aisle and to wash a person's feet that in a few minutes I know is going to stab me in the back, then you better be sure I have a different purpose in mind for washing his feet than what Christ had. I'm not going to go over there and bow down in humility and wash his feet because I've got another motive. So what I'll do, I'll take the bowl over there and I'll pour acid in it before I wash his feet. Or I'm going to put shards of glass and the the towel before I dry them because that's the way I'm built. That's what I am. I'm not going to submit myself in humility to anyone. In In the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that in jealousy, Cain slew his brother Abel. You know the reason that he did that? He did that because he was a depraved son of Adam. He was a depraved creature, and we are the same. We are all depraved in Adam. And we can't do what Jesus did because we don't have the capacity to do it. But there's something striking here in the words of John because he is speaking to Gnostics, people that certainly would not do this. And yet John writes here with expectation that Christians are without excuse if they don't do this. And he says, if you don't do it, then you don't belong to Christ. This is a commandment. It's an expansion of the old commandment that's been perfectly fulfilled in Christ. And what that tells us is that the natural man, as we are before we know Christ as Savior, we don't have the capability. But when we are in Christ that's when we have the ability to do it. And not only do we have the ability, we don't have an excuse not to do it. And if you continually excuse yourself from doing it, then there's no proof that you belong to Christ. You see, what he's telling us here is that Christ is the light, and he's opened up this whole new idea of love in a magnificent way. He gave you a demonstration, and he said, this is the way that people will know that you are my disciples. So have you done this? And do you have the ability to do it? Well, I know that you do because I've seen it. And we've looked here in Scripture and we've seen a demonstration. John says it's possible. So now can we actually look at the saints of God and find that there is a demonstration of it? Who are the saints? 
Well, haven't we learned in our studies of uh, Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians? Uh, there particularly, we looked at that because almost every letter that Paul writes, he starts out writing to the saints, or he uses that. He used that in Philippians, used that in Ephesians. And a saint to Paul is anybody who has become a Christian. So we're all saints. And so if all of us have the ability to do this, and it's expected of us, then there ought to be some saints in whom we can find a demonstration of it. So what I want to do for the rest of my time tonight, I'm not going to take too long with this, but I want to tell you about Berean Baptist Church and proof that foot washing is not all that uncommon among real Christians. How do saints wash feet? Well, the other day I was reading an article in the newspaper about foot washing, and there were some people that had their names in the paper because they were washing others' feet. Now, why do you suppose that you would have your name in the paper if you were going to wash people's feet? Why would you even do an interview about that? Well, the reason that you would is because of the same reason that the Pharisees did. They wanted somebody to look at that. They wanted someone to applaud them and, and make comments about how, how humble they were because they washed people's feet. And so, just like the Pharisees, they always, had to, they always had to sound that trumpet before them before they ever did a good deed. And so, if you tonight decide that you're going to get up from here and walk over there to the kitchen and get one of Gail's bowls out of the kitchen and come back in here and wash people's feet, one of two things is going to happen, maybe both of them. One, Gail is going to bop you upside the head for putting dirty feet in one of her, boil, in her bowls. That's one thing that's going to happen. And then the second is, you will have sounded a trumpet before you if you got up from here and you came in here and made a demonstration of it. So that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that Christ did, which was a spontaneous act. It was an act that was driven by a heart of love. He didn't announce before the supper. He didn't tell all the disciples, now I want to make sure that you're all there at 6 o'clock tonight because we're having a foot washing service. No, Jesus didn't do that. It was a spontaneous act of love. Now let me give you just a few of these spontaneous acts of love. And nobody now can claim that there's a trumpet that sounded because I'm not going to give you the names of anybody. But I want to start out with a personal example. And I want to get this out of the way first. And these are things that have been done to me. I mean, I'm not going to tell you about... I probably haven't done anything for anybody. So I'm not going to tell you about any of that. But I want to tell you about things that people have done for me. A few years ago, when I first became pastor here at Brian, I was living in Napa and driving back and forth every day. And uh, those, that first year or so was a very difficult year for us financially. And so I was driving back and forth, and the tires on my car were getting worn down. And I didn't know what I was going to do about this. I really couldn't afford to replace them. But I knew that I had to keep driving to church because I have to be here. I mean, I'm the pastor of the church. I have to show up for church. So I just kept driving, and I asked one of the members of the church where I could get a good deal on tires. So this member gave me an address in Petaluma, sent me down there, and, and I went into the shop had the tires put on my car, went up to the counter to get ready to pay for the tires. And the man said, well, you don't have to pay for these. They're already taken care of. He said, they're already paid for. So I got four brand new tires on my car, and they're still on there. Now, that's been quite a while, so take note of that. You might want to do something about it. <clears throat> but that didn't happen to me one time. That's happened to me a lot of times. We, we had another member of the church that would never let me pay for service on my car. Every time I took my car in, it was always paid for. 
And I don't tell you those things because I'm looking for freebies or I want money. It's just times when I've found that somebody offers to, wa- offers, to, offers to wash my feet, and I've been blindsided by that. I wasn't expecting that, but that person did that for me. I had no idea that it was coming. Now, in the things that I've just told you about, those are things that cost people some money. But washing feet, more often than not, has nothing at all to do with spending money. Uh, but I'll tell you this, that washing feet can be costless anyway. I mean, it costs you a lot, I should say, anyway. I mean, it, it, there, there may not be a monetary cost always involved in it, but it can cost you money when you, or cost you time, cost you effort, cost you a lot of other things when it's uh, time to wash somebody's feet. Did you know that we have a, a member of the church that has spent hours with people going into surgery and just goes and sits with the family to comfort them and to pray with them until that surgery is over? Now, that's costly in one way because what that does is put self behind. A lot of other things that that person had to do on that day, and they have to shove all that to the side, put it all on the back burner, because washing feet for somebody else is more important than what that person has to do on that day. That's an example of how Bereans wash people's feet. And did you know that we have a member of the church that took took it upon him to help another family that was shut in? And without asking for anything, without receiving a dime of remuneration, went and bought groceries, fixed dinners, and took that to those people for many, many days. And that happened while this very same person was in turmoil, when there was sickness in his family, when financial times weren't so good for him, and yet he was willing to do that. You know what that shows? There is no darkness in that person's heart. That's somebody who wants to wash feet, and that's the example that we have in Scripture. And did you also know that we have some men in the church that for weeks have shuttled Grant back and forth to doctor appointments, took him to surgery, took care of his lawn, have done repairs around his house, visited him, taken food to him, and was never asked by me or anyone else to do that for him? And did you know that I put out an email request just a few weeks ago for a family, uh, for prayer for an elderly family? And as soon as that email was read, I got a call on the phone Somebody asking me, can I take some food over there? Is there some way that I can help out? And then I'll tell you about this one. This one is posthumously, and I can mention a name because of that. But did you know that Frank Tharp used to privately give me envelopes with money? And he would say, I want you to take that. I want you to use it for somebody who has a need. Now, Frank was on a fixed income, and I knew that he couldn't afford to do that. But you know, Frank thought he could. And the reason he thought he could was because he knew that there are blessings that come out of that. There's a reward that the Lord gives for that. And so that's what Frank wanted to do. He just wanted to wash feet. And I could go on, and I could tell you about a lot of different things. And again, I've I've purposely withheld names because foot washers don't want anybody to tell people that they've been foot washing. Matter of fact, this, something happened today, even right today. And I, and I can't tell you the person's name because they made at, said, you promised me that you're not going to use my name. And I didn't tell them what I was doing tonight. It just now came, just right now came to my mind. I was thinking about this. But this person had done something this past week, and uh, I noticed that. And I, I, had, I had told this particular person, I said, you know something, you are a great ambassador for Brian Baptist Church. You're really a great ambassador. And this person wrote me an email today, and she said, I was thinking about what you said about me being an ambassador, and I'm afraid I've overstepped my bounds. 
She said, isn't it the deacon's job to do those kinds of things? And, and uh, I don't want to get on the deacon's jobs. And I said, don't you worry about that. Uh, when we've got people in our church that want to lend a hand and they can talk to somebody about salvation or they have some need that needs to be met, you go right ahead and do that. You're not overstepping your bounds. And I, and I told this person, I said, we need people like that. And she said, well, I'm, she wrote me back another email after I said that. She said, oh, I'm so happy to hear that. I'm so relieved that I, that I did the right thing. And she said, make sure. I, she, said, I, she said, I want to be used in the church, but I want to be a person behind the scenes. I don't want anybody to use my name and say what I've done. And I said, boy, if we just had more people like that in Brian Baptist Church that would help out and never have to worry about sounding a trumpet in front of them. See, those are people who love to wash feet. And this is what John is talking about when he speaks of Christians that walk in the light. Now, a few weeks ago, I was preaching on the golden rule. And I, I, at that time, I said that nobody ever got the golden rule right until Jesus. That principle of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that's always been around. I mean, that was around way before Jesus came on the scene. It was even older than Moses in the Old Testament law. Matter of fact, it goes all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi and maybe even before that. But the principle was always put into the negative. The principle was always stated negatively. Don't do unto others what you don't want them to do unto you. And Jesus was the first one who got that right. He was the first one who stated it positively. He said, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And that was a statement that was proactive. It's a statement that says you have to go out of your way intentionally to do something for others, to do things that you want to be done to you. And you may also remember that a couple of times I've, I've said that Jesus went to the cross because that's what he would have, would have wanted to be done for him if he was lost and on his way to hell. He did that because he had a heart that was full of love. So it occurred to me when I was thinking about that, that with foot washing, there must be intent. You have to go out of your way to do this. You know, liberals have got things wrong on so many different things. These liberals think that they are so smart about everything, and um, they think they're profound thinkers. So I was thinking about that bumper sticker. You've probably seen it on the back of cars around that says, practice, practice random acts of kindness. That's not good enough for a Christian. A Christian is one who practices intentional acts of kindness. He's built that way. He goes out of his way in order to help other people. And the reason that he does is because he has been transformed by the gospel of Christ. I read something by Martin Lloyd-Jones that I thought was really good, and I'll close with this. He said, when people become Christians, two things happen to them. Their own eyes are opened, and they are enabled to see... And they are also in an entirely new realm. Those who become Christians are those who are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light or into the kingdom of his dear son. Their position has changed, yes, but they themselves are also changed. I am changed. I am in a new realm. I am a different person, and I am a citizen of a different kingdom. Both things are true. I am not simply the man I was in a new kingdom. I am a new man in a new kingdom. So the thing that we have to hold on to is that if we are truly Christian people, we are left without excuse in this matter of brotherly love. The darkness is passing away, the light has come, and we are new people. There is no excuse for us whatsoever if we are not fulfilling this commandment. You know, I don't think it's too puzzling 
that the Apostle Paul wrote that strife and divisions among church members is a very carnal enterprise. He said, those that do this walk as men. And what he meant was that Christians who do that walk like they are unbelievers. Now, a question that should come to our minds as we studied First John and also in our studies in the Sermon on the Mount these past few weeks is a question that maybe we really ought to think about. Is the reason that people act like men, as the Apostle Paul says, is the reason that they act like unbelievers is because they actually are unbelievers? That's a thought that you need to be thinking about. Paul thought it was possible. Jesus thought it was possible. John thought it was possible. That there could be people in the church that act like unbelievers who actually are unbelievers. And we have to look at these tests that we're studying here, that obedience test, that moral test, and also this one that we're talking about tonight, this test of love, a social test. How do you treat those that are around you? It makes all the difference about whether you can truly be considered a Christian. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truths that we learn here. Most of all, tonight we are thankful as we look into this text that we have an example that you have given us and lord i just pray that every member of berean baptist church would take this example to heart and we are thankful lord that we do see demonstrations of it in our church Uh, there are people who will wash feet there are people that will do for others positively that actively and with intent go about their lives trying to help other people and that is such a refreshing attitude to see in our church. Lord, bless us and help us that we all might have that kind of attitude for others. So bless as we sing tonight. We thank you for each one who's come to hear your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's